You know, Brian, I I appreciate you really getting into the the spirit of the topic tonight. The crown, beautiful, spot on. The the torch, of course, robes, yes. Full green body paint. I mean that that's that's dedication. Really. And the wig. Don't forget the wig. And and the wig. What confuses me is the half smoking cigarette, wheel of cheese, and the collection of Jerry Lewis Blu-rays. Well duh. She's French. Oh right. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty, and I am not in drag tonight, let alone that of the Statue of Liberty, as we were describing. <laughs> That's true, you're not. You're no, not. you're not. And we're very thankful for that, and quite frankly, we're thankful for it every single day. Yes. The the, the less I dress like a woman, the better. <laughs> That's what Eric is trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Let's leave that for those who have a little less body hair, shall we? Yes, indeed. I agree yeah. with that. I support that endeavor. Uh, how are you? I'm, I've had a crazy week. I'm yeah. tired. I'm super tired. I'm exhausted. But you know what? I'm doing all right. Yeah? Yeah, I'm surviving. How you doing? Uh, I'm all right. Just got, no, we never talked about me getting back from vacation. We didn't. You went You went off to Durango. Yes, I did, and it was awesome. We went to Steamboat Lake for a few days, which is on the northern side of the state, like six or seven hours away from Durango. It's much closer to the Wyoming border. It was great. My, my dad and my brother fished. I didn't have a fishing license, so I took pictures Oh, instead. We were planning on having this whole grand feast of fish tacos. We caught one fish the entire weekend, and it was about a 12-inch fish, not enough to feed us. So my brother took it home because he was the one who caught it, and we went out to dinner that night instead for Father's Day. And it was it was really, really great. And then, you know, I was moving along and having a good old time, and then I got sick the last two days. That sucks. Yeah, altitude sickness is not fun. They may or may not have had some uh, alcoholic um, beverages. Yeah, that were the cause of that. But, yeah, see, yeah. my brother works, Sean, uh, in his day job, works at a um, craft brew pub, basically. So he has these beers that are amazing, but they're also 7% alcohol. And, you know, most beer in California is like 5% at the most. Yeah. It doesn't sound like much of a difference, but it is. And you add on five to 6,000 feet of elevation, and it's a real difference. <laughs> I bet. So, yeah, Brian had a bad hangover. Not going to lie. You had a hangover that lasted about a, about a week. Uh, well, week and I, a think, half. I think the first day was truly hangover. I think everything else was, it was just full on because of the dehydration yeah. uh, of the hangover. I think it escalated just to flat out altitude sickness. Uh, which I've had before, so I, I was familiar with the symptoms. It was awful. I didn't. I practically ate nothing for two days. I mean, I had like little scraps of food here and there, but that's about all my stomach could take. So, well, I'm glad you're feeling better. You certainly look better. And yeah, I dropped uh, four pounds. Yeah, yay, dehydration. Yeah. Uh, you know what reminds me of dehydration? Liberty. What? That makes no sense. No, it doesn't. And. Well, okay, so I, I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to segue here. So being that, you know, we are in the month of July now, uh, we thought it'd be fun to devote the month of July to a couple of major points in American history. Uh, so the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about the Statue of Liberty, but also 
Ellis Island, right? Which was a major port for many of the immigrants that came into our country. But we're going to focus this first episode primarily on the Statue of Liberty. Primarily, yeah. And I, I think that what we're really looking at is the the imagery, the iconic uh, image of America. When you look at it, of where people have seen hope, where they have seen a place where they could come to escape persecution, to escape war, to escape from poverty, really. A chance to start over, a chance to create a new life. And uh, both Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, for, you know, many millions of Im- of American immigrants, that was the first thing they saw when they came to America. Yeah, and which is 100% intentional, as we were going to find out later on. And when you think of America, there are very few symbols that come to mind, right? We, of right. course, we have the bald eagle. Right. Right. With the uh, arrows and the the olive branch. You've yeah. got Uncle Sam, of course, the illustration by Thomas Nast. Of course, you've got morbid obesity. Uh, which, if by, I'm assuming you're referring to Santa Claus at that point, because also, okay, sure. <laughs> a, also a very American image, right? Developed by Thomas Nast, even though right, Santa Claus right. himself, we talked about, was not. And he goes around the world, though. That's yes. true. But, yeah, yeah. But really, what's the other thing? You, it's the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty. And American Pie and, and our flag. But Statue of Liberty. American, there's no such thing as American Pie. That is a metaphor. Pie? Pie is a symbol? I think I think of a pie as being very American. It's actually not. It's European. We'll talk about that some other time. Okay, um, fair enough. Apple Pie, I think of as being very American. Oh, you mean the Dutch who invented that one? Very well, then. Thank you, Netherlands. Yes. Trust me. You're going to get in a food battle with me. You're going to lose. <laughs> All right, Mr. Foodie. We already established that before we began the episode when you got very, very defensive. So anyway, I won't bring up food <laughs> anymore. About about Belgian waffles. Uh, so, I mean, the Statue of Liberty is, in a way, like you're saying, too, it's synonymous with America. And it's so deeply tied to the story of America. Uh, really, when you think about the way it was when it was conceived, Right? So let's go back to its initial, original idea. As we were joking in the cold open, we weren't kidding. I mean, it's, I, I don't think it's a surprise of many people at this point to know that the Statue of Liberty was, in fact, a French uh, concept initially. It was assembled in Paris. Built. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, was, it was assembled in Paris. And um, the idea was proposed by Edouard de Laboulet in 1865 uh, for a couple different reasons. Because two important things had happened in world history at that point. Can you name both of them? French Revolution. No, the French Revolution was 1789 or 1788, I believe. Right around when we had formed our Oh, you're talking about at the time that the actual Statue of Liberty was created. At the time that the Statue of Liberty was originally in the the mind of... Conceptualized. Exactly. Are we talking about the American Revolutionary or uh, Civil War? We're talking about the, the end of the American Civil War, right? And... We do, we do have kind of the, the later end of the French Revolution, but I don't consider this the true French Revolution. The French Revolution in which the monarchy uh, had been toppled was 1789. There were several revolutions that took place throughout that history, that transitionary period. So let me rephrase myself, because I believe I should get at least a half point, uh, a French Revolution. More specifically, the end of the Second French Empire. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so... A revolution of sorts. I just yeah. want you to acknowledge that in some way I was correct. I, if you are American and you need to a recap of the of the Civil War, get out. 
go find a lovely documentary by Ken Burns called uh, the Civil War. The Civil War. It's it's, it's... it'll give you everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah. um, and we'll probably cover the Civil War at some point on the show. We haven't. We've shied away from American history quite a bit, actually. I wouldn't uh, say that. I think what we focused on, though, are the less talked about parts of American history, yeah. which is what I, I like the most. Because the Civil War has been talked to death. It's been done. Yeah. But I think what we need is a more unique spin on it. So, listeners, here's a challenge. Go ahead and suggest a topic relating to the Civil War that hasn't been talked to death. Yeah. A, a, a unique perspective that is encompassing of the events of the war uh, would be interesting. Uh, fun, fun little fact. France actually recognized both the Union and the Confederacy as two separate, two sovereign nations during the Civil War. However, uh, this is, of course, was during the French Empire, the Second French Empire. Now, by 1865, France had again become a republic. And uh, they had felt that since America had been such a strong ally to them in the forming of their democracy, what better way to reaffirm and bolster that alliance and to also so to not only um, give American resolve a boost by giving a statue to represent a democracy, but to also use the same symbol to bolster democracy in France. So that's why Laboulet was so uh, adamant about this gift being presented. I mean, it's interesting because Laboulet saw the U.S. government, and I'm actually going to quote him at this point, it says, as a natural end product of two centuries of work and freedom. So... Uh, and he saw France as, as it being the same thing. He thought the two countries, that France could learn from the United States in the formation of their democracy. And in a, and in a way, they did. Because a lot of their, um, even though a lot of their government is formed differently, they have a parliamentary system, and their president does not have as many executive powers as ours does. At this point in time, there was a lot of that spirit that was still very much there. Um, finally, though, when they were looking for someone to support this idea... He came across this young sculptor named Auguste Bartholdi, who um, was Laboulaye's biggest supporter of the monument. And he, he himself had dreams of building colossal objects. In fact, he had a plan to build a lighthouse in the, uh, I'm actually probably going to mess this up, the Sway uh, Canal. Uh, but actually, he could never get the project even started. But he had the idea of building these grandiose objects. And he, and he saw uh, this statue as the opportunity to do it. So let's talk about why Bertoldi wanted to build such a big structure to begin with, right? What was his motivation to do so other than to this uh, ideal that Laboulaye had cling to? Well, 10 years before, Bertoldi had been through, Eric, can you guess where he toured through? Come on, I know you can. Well, you're looking Come at on. me like I should probably say Egypt. So I'm going to guess... Uh, Greece. That's a joke. Egypt. He went through Egypt. Now, of course, interestingly enough, though, there is one part of Egypt that has been partially, it's been Greece, it's been Egyptian, it's been in both. So what would that city be? I would have to say Thebes. Here you go. <laughs> yes, he's a nerd. Um, <laughs> anyway, he had traveled there in about 1856, and uh, he saw lots of monuments that speak to the grandeur of both Egyptian and Greek sculpture, right? And this is a point in time where Greek and Egyptian culture is having a rebirth. We are rediscovering our fascination with the ancients at this point, right? So it's no surprise that when he goes to Egypt that he goes and sees 
these structures that are there, and they inspire him to want to build something as grandiose as what these were. And in fact, he wants to build them even bigger. He wants to build the biggest, you know, structure that's ever been built. He literally wants something to be colossal. And uh, no surprise, he was also very fascinated by the, by this point, no longer standing, but the mythic, almost mythical at this point, Colossus of Rhodes. It's not mythical. It actually did stand at one point, but it had collapsed well before uh, the modern era. So he only knew of it in drawing and only knew of it in legend. Uh, so to him, what would become Lady Liberty was his his new Colossus that he wanted to build. Uh, and he drew a couple different places of inspiration from this. One was, uh, of course, the Colossus of Rhodes himself. In fact, even the spiked crown that Lady Liberty has is derived from that same uh, look, but also the the Roman goddess Libertas. In fact, that's basically that was his re envisioning of it. It was his depiction of that of that deity. So, what ends up happening is as he's trying to bolster support, he makes a trip after you know he gets the buy in. Rather, I should say after Labelle gets his buy in, he goes to America in 1871, trying to get support from american diplomats to endorse this this gift because this is a a wildly expensive project and it's going to take both french and american support financial support to be able to you know to be able to get this project off the ground so he meets with you know with politicians and he meets with publishers to try to gain some public interest in it and he even meets with president grant um and he gets mixed interest in it you know he he's not quite able to get full support going and that was that was very common like uh, not everyone felt like this was a worthy gift. And plus, America was already going through its own economic troubles. Why do we want to invest all this money in a giant statue? You know, that was kind of the mindset that was going on at the time. But what he does end up doing, though, is he, in his trip to America, is he he's kind of unofficially looking at different cities to where he thinks this, uh, where he thinks the statue would, would look. And he crisscrossed the whole country looking for cities to, to hold it in. And finally, he settles on New York City. And he, this is I think brilliant because Bertoli was 50 years ahead of his time, right? He saw the New York Harbor as the gateway to America. And this is before, probably 20, 30 years before, the massive influx that you would see toward the beginning of the 20s. I mean, you would see some in the 1850s and 60s of immigration, but it got bigger toward the end of the 19th century. Well, I mean, before, and we'll get into this when we talk about Ellis Island, but before Ellis Island... New York Harbor was still a huge destination point uh, for a lot of uh, for a lot of immigrants. In fact, about eight million came through yeah. even before Ellis Island. So I can understand where he comes from from that perspective, and especially anyone coming from Europe, New York is kind of the place to yeah. to to disembark. That wasn't always true. Philadelphia, several other locations across the United States. Yeah, my ancestors came to America through Philadelphia. Yeah, so. you know, uh, they they were all locations where we had large disembarkments of, of immigrants. Sure. But, and any, basically, any East Coast major port yeah. would would make sense for that, right? But New York, I think, has a certain um, certain mystique around it. New York City, as we start to see it, I mean, we're, we're far away from that. But we're starting to see New York become this strong metropolis. Um, it's not, like I said, doesn't really fully take shape until the early 20th century with the skyscrapers and with, because those innovations hadn't been made yet at this point, you know, um, they were still trying to figure out how to build buildings to be taller in the first place. And they were, these were buildings that were still being made out of brick and mortar. So to the idea of having a, a giant structure in the Harbor, uh, as it is, was kind of a, a lofty concept, no pun intended, uh, to begin with. 
Anyway, he does settle on this little island that's off the coast of Manhattan, which is at this point called Bedloe Island. Uh, mostly used, uh, there was a fort there, so it mostly used as kind of a military posting. Also, uh, fun little fact, at this point in time, the uh, island sits on, on these, now they're dead, but they were massive oyster beds. So I guess, you know, <laughs> great if you like seafood. But um, very much, the New York Harbor was much more just a shipping port. And that, that's, of course, still true to, to this day, but this part of the harbor was very much full of trade ships. You know, you, you don't really see that perception, I think, today. When you see the New York Harbor or the New York cityscape, you see ferries going back and forth from the statue because it's it's mostly a tourism spot. But that's where he thought would be the perfect location for it because it sat right there facing the city. So it was it was really the ideal location for him. So finally, you know, after getting all the, the pieces in place, he gets the enough support to start building the statue. And interestingly enough, so now he begins to design it. And this has a couple of challenges to it because, he, again, he's trying to go for the largest structure to be built at this point. And uh, currently, the, the largest structure at that time had, uh, that was a statue was only 75 feet tall, and it was of Charles Borromeo in Italy. And uh, the only way they were able to get a structure that big without it collapsing or eventually crumbling was using the repoussé method, which is a method of you basically make a mold uh, usually using wood, um, you make a plaster of that mold, and then what you do is you lay out the pieces, you take your, your thin plate metal, in this case copper, and you hammer it on top of the, the mold until it gets the shape that you want it to be. And then, later, then you assemble the plates with rivets later on. Uh, and that is exactly how Bertoldi decided he was going to build the statue. He had considered using bronze, he had considered using marble, but they were just, again, too heavy of uh, materials to be able to do that. I mean, marble would be... Marble would be absurd. I mean, it could be done. It certainly could be done. Perhaps with modern construction materials, sure, but in the 19th century, probably not. It seems very impractical, and I think I think the decision that he ultimately made was the wisest. Even though it doesn't share the same appearance uh, that it does when it was first constructed... Yeah, uh, it's it's aged well, I think. Well, as and most it's character, yeah, I mean, as most architecture and art does, it reflects its time, right? If you make something out of marble or out of stone, you know, you create the sense of eternalness right. to it, right? Uh, it's always been that case, and it also sense, creates the sense of ancient origin. Metal and iron, those are industrial age materials, right, for construction. So it makes it does speak to its time with it being the way it was constructed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I really do stand by that. I think that it gives it character, seeing it change in the way that it has over time. And the aging of metal and, and bronze in particular and its oxidization and it becoming becoming green. I, I don't know. I, I kind of kind of weigh it back and forth as to the original appearance, which was more powerful, uh, which was which stands out more. And the green, honestly, just kind of pops, you know, especially against the yeah. the city. Uh, it really kind of stands out more. Whereas with the bronze, even as it was, even if it was polished, you know, which would have glimmered and shined, yeah, it, it would have lost some of that character. I yeah. think. I and, think it's. I think it's aged well. And the funny thing is, uh, I, I'm not 100 percent sure that that wasn't intentional. I mean, yes, of course, you like this shiny copper statue to look, you know, like its original form. But I think Bertoldi knew that there was going to be oxidation. I mean, other 
statues had had the same discoloration over time too. Borromeo's statue sure. isn't as green, but it's discolored over time. It's gotten more dark. It's gotten tarnished, and it's got little tins of green in it. But it's mostly just this tarnished dark metal. Has anyone ever taken a color photograph? of the Statue of Liberty from that time, because color photography did exist. There's no colors of it. There are illustrations of yeah. it with color, and um, there are reproductions of the face and of the foot uh, in the museum of the pedestal that are still in copper. But no one ever actually produced color photography of the time. Correct. Oh, that's a bummer. In the early 1900s, when it was starting to discolor, uh, there was an effort, there was considering whether they should replate the statue. Um, but in fact, they decided that since the oxidization didn't, create any structural damage so you're just gonna leave it as is you're looking at about 15 to 20 years for that change to happen correct i mean it technically started decaying en route right uh from france it never actually was perfect from the get-go um but you know it was already starting to show its tarnish right away but anyway uh speaking of which why don't we talk about the actual building of the statue now that we've talked about the materials in place so right the other piece that comes into mind here is well first of all if we're going to use the repoussé method, we need a structure that's going to be able to hold this thing in place. And originally, uh, Bertoldi had tapped a very famous architect by the name of Eugène uh, Violet de Luc, or Le Duc, who uh, had done, it was known for restoring cathedrals. In fact, his most famous one is he had restored Notre Dame uh, in the 19th century. And he had a very simple approach. It was just put sheer weight in it. He had a very simple grid system he was going to use with levels and weights in each level to uh, hold the structure into place. And uh, thankfully for the statue, I don't know if how well, well that would have hold. Sadly, he died before he could mm. actually build that. Yeah. So who does he go with instead? He needs some help. Who? What other French engineer architect would come to mind? How about Gustave Eiffel? Oh! Oh, of course, of the famous Eiffel Tower. Exactly. Uh, he would probably be a good resource. <laughs> exactly. The guy was a brilliant engineer, and he decided uh, he was going to use, uh, basically build a tower within the statue of, right. of iron scaffolding, internal scaffolding that would hold up uh, the plates. And in fact, he molded the bars some of the bars to the contours of the, the sculpture so that, that when they bolted it in, it would be very, very sound. Now, this predates his his building of the Eiffel Tower. Correct. But I, I'm sure he had to have conceptualized the Eiffel Tower and had something in mind. It's essentially the same thing, right? It's a yeah. bunch of iron bars that have been put together in just a really intriguing way. Right. Now, he knew that no one was ever going to see the inside of his statue, so he, he didn't have to make it as uh, form. You know, it was more function than form, uh, for sure. And, and really, this would have just been... A proving ground for Eiffel to be able to say, you know, yes, this this definitely works. Correct. Here it is on this massive hundred foot tall statue. Uh, I clearly can can go bigger. Correct. So uh, now we fast forward to 1881, when the construction of the statue begins in Paris, in a park, actually. Uh, oh, how very cosmopolitan. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, it was a big obstruction because there, there was buildings all around it. It ended up blocking a lot of windows and everything. So they built it. So what they'd done is, of course, you have to build the internal scaffolding first. Uh, and then you build the external scaffolding and then you apply the plates to right. the mold. And this was really an undertaking because, so again, you have the plaster molds they're making uh, off of these wood planks that they have basically constructed to be these 
very um, skeletal-like moldings of the outer workings of the statue, and then they're pounding the cowper to the shape of the plaster, and then they're mounting it on the the structure. When you really think about what it takes to to make all that work. Yeah, and it took three years from beginning to end to get the thing constructed in Paris. They couldn't have just used paper mache. No. Damn. I don't think it would have (laughs) quite held. (laughs) Um, But interestingly enough, the French fell in love with it. In fact, to the point that by the end it was of it being constructed in 1884, uh, it became known as the Lady of the Park. Oh, how sad. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of sad to... Really, honestly, if we think about it, Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty itself, is an immigrant. Yeah, it's, it's French. It is. came to America. Yeah. There was a tear-felt, good, you know, tearful goodbye yeah. uh, to this, what had become almost a family member, I'm sure, to some of these folks who had watched everything that went yeah. into it uh wow yeah well really actually there could be nothing more american in concept than the than the statue of liberty and we'll get to that in just a second because uh in 1884 uh the u.s minister to france at this time levi morton is finally presented the statue uh on july 4th and uh fitting date and uh, of course somehow i think it might have been planned yeah and of course it was <laughs> it was approved he was like yeah. this is spectacular so now this is where really the genius part. It took three years to build it. It took less than two to disassemble it, ship it across to New York, and reassemble it. Pretty awesome. Yeah, that's and incredible. It didn't get. And keep in mind, it didn't get to New York Harbor until 1885. So it took a year for them to rebuild it, and they rebuilt it without scaffolding. Uh, reassembled it, which is ridiculous. They had cranes <sighs> to, scary. to do it, but it's it's pretty nuts what they were able to pull off. But we ran into one problem. We have a beautiful statue and nothing for it to stand on. Mm. So um, what America had to do is they had to come up with the funding for the pedestal. And that's where the financial troubles kind of go into play. Thankfully, uh, it was actually American newspapers that helped raise the funds, particularly Joseph Pulitzer and the New York World and the World newspapers ran funds to get people just to donate to it because the government was wasn't didn't have much money at the point. They didn't want to foot the bill for it. Folks... <laughs> If you've, ever wondered, a if, you've ever, if you've ever wondered if this systemic problem of uh, America having issues funding the arts goes back a long way, oh, it does. <laughs> it goes back to even they, they didn't, they were people who didn't even want to spend the money to build a Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Today, it's a national park. We, we have federal funds that, that run it every, <laughs> every year. Taxpayer money. Taxpayer money, exactly. Yeah. Back then, yeah. there were some penny pinchers in, in Congress. Yeah. So... They, they wouldn't want to fit the bill. In fact, there was um, a lot of worries that they weren't going to be able to afford to build the pedestal, and the statue would never actually get finished. Uh, there was even a political cartoon in this, the time that they thought, well, just give it to the advertisers. They'll pay for it. And there's a picture of Lady Liberty that's on the pedestal, but she's got ads all over her panels, <laughs> you know, and she's got, like, a, a top hat that's that's with an ad for, like, a hattery and, like, a cigar in her mouth to represent some cigar company. She's wearing sunglasses. Hey, you know what? If it had been built today, that may have been very likely. It probably would have been the Red Bull Lady of Liberty, Statue of Liberty. Possibly. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, thankfully, they didn't have to do that. Pulitzer did a great job of using the media to bolster uh, support, and he himself raised $100,000. Most of those donations were a dollar or less. Now, keep in mind, this is in U.S. dollars in the 19th century, where a dollar stretched a lot further than it did today. You know, we're talking about a dollar probably being the equivalent of mm, $50 
today. And that's now maybe I'm I'm overstating it a little bit because I don't know the exact inflation rates. But nevertheless, a dollar was a lot. A hundred thousand dollars alone was also a tremendous amount of money. That would have been probably to build this pedestal today. Just guessing, probably about a hundred million dollars to to erect it today. And uh, and that might have just been a material cost. I mean, you think about the labor that's going to go into sure. all of that organization of it. Right. Uh, yeah. The renting of porta potties alone. Right. Would have been you know astronomical. And uh, the reason why I say that there's nothing more American in concept than the Statue of Liberty is because while the statue is French, the pedestal is 100% American. Uh, the architect, uh, Richard Morris Hunt, uh, worked with Bertoldi to over several designs. And if you go to the, the pedestal museum in the Statue of Liberty, uh, they have all these different mock-up models that he had done. There was once a circular, kind of more of a, a turret-looking uh, pedestal at one point. And they had several different designs. They had done a, a couple square ones. And finally... What they, resided, what they resulted in was this very nice neoclassical-looking one that had the columns in the middle, the one that we know of today right. as the pedestal. And finally, they presented that final design to the, the uh, Council for the Statue of Liberty that was appointed by Congress uh, in 1884. And so with that and with the money finally uh, in place in 1885, they were able to get that pedestal up, which stood at about 85 feet on its own, and then the 151-foot statue could now complete its uh, structure. And um, it was also intended not just to be a monument. It was also intended to be a light tower, a lighthouse. The torch was meant to be functional as a lighthouse as well. Really? In New York Harbor. Harbor. It, did, it didn't last very long. Um, it was not a very effective uh, lighthouse because huh. the, the initial torch design, uh, well, Bertoldi couldn't quite pull it off. So what he ended up doing is he ended up having this grid uh, this iron grid that didn't look very pleasant with the orange glass around it. And the original torch is actually in, again, the Pedestal Museum. You can uh, you can go up and look inside of it. So it was not a very effective as a lighthouse, but it was effective, of course, as a monument. So are we talking about the, the torch as its entirety or just the flame that's coming out? The flame. The flame's coming out. Okay. The flame is itself, yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. So that being said, in 1886, in fact, on October 8, 28, 1886, finally, the structure was unveiled and dedicated Unfortunately, it was very poor weather that day. It was wet. It was windy. And in fact, I believe even the the big massive cloth they had put over it to, to hover it up actually blew off. And they were kind of worried that it was going to ruin it. But seeing it finally in its majesty, everybody in New York and in America was behind it. And that's the thing. Pulitzer, when he was trying to raise money for it, is like, this isn't just for New York. This is for America, you know? And it, like, I'm not kidding. Literally half the city what came out that day for the dedication and i would imagine so in fact half of them were kind of stuck on fifth avenue there were parades there there are still memorabilia that are in this museum at, at the the monument i believe the very all the first stuff. ticker tape parade in new york was for its unveiling if i'm not mistaken. uh very possible very possible yeah i don't i don't i can't confirm that but uh it wouldn't surprise me in the least because this is a massive event right so as we get into the 20th century um Mostly what it comes down to now is just maintaining this beautiful monument. So finally, eventually, it gets uh, it gets protected by Congress, and it's, uh, it is now run as a national park, uh, and it's considered part of the National Park Services, that as well as Ellis Island, which we'll talk about later. But there's a couple of key points that we do need to bring up. At one point, of course, we now know that when you go to the Statue of Liberty, you can get two tickets. You can get tickets to get into the pedestal, and you can get tickets to go up to the crown. 
you used to be able to get tickets to look in the torch too because there was the, the observation deck that was outside the quote-unquote lighthouse of the, the, the flame. Well, unfortunately, that is no longer possible uh, for safety reasons. And why? Not because of the design flaw, as many people think. Uh, I think Ephil knew what he was doing when he designed the internal structure, and so did Bertoli. Uh, they made it a very... Even though it was a challenge to have a protruding arm from this statue, which had not really been done at, that, at this point in architecture, uh, it was nevertheless a structurally sound uh, appendage to the statue until 1916, when, unfortunately, German spies... This sounds like something out of a novel, but it's 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 totally true. Uh, German spies, uh, German saboteurs, I should say, um, were taking advantage of an ammo depot that was stationed on the island during the war. There was a fort, by the way, that was on uh, at one point on the island. It was called Fort Wood. In fact, the statue sits on top of where, where the fort used to be. At this point, they had basically bombed the Statue of Liberty from the inside, not in the sense of a, of a of a aircraft bombing it. Keep in mind, again. Uh, Aviation as a means of uh, warfare at this point was was just kind of in its infancy. Yeah, some sort of explosive device was used. Correct. Uh, quite likely with a with an alarm clock on top. Correct. So, and it was uh, a big blast, too. There was shrapnel that was uh, found as far away as Maryland. So, huge blast. Well, not only that, but it was felt as if it was a, a 5.0 earthquake. Yeah. So, I mean, it made is, a big thud. Yeah. Uh, suffice to say that, not surprisingly, the statue... Uh, was a symbol of our symbol of our patriotism at this point. So it um, it had only been around for thirty years, but it would had become synonymous with American with Americana with American culture at this point. So they it was repaired to a degree, but not to a way where it was safe to to enter. And since that point in time, the torch has not been available to the public. It has, however, been repaired several times because of that. <laughs> of that bombing. Uh, they've had to rebuild the torch, in fact, a couple times. And now the gold-plated uh, glass that's on the torch, is w- which was Bertoli's original concept, uh, it's actually truer to form now than it was when it was originally built. Um, and they've had to rebuild the torch a couple times, like I said. So the other piece that comes to mind, too, is that when you have copper and iron on an island that's surrounded with a very with with salt water, you're going to get erosion. So, yes, of course, we talked about the discoloration of the copper plates. Those were not determined to be a um, any any structural damage, any structural hazard to the 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 um, to the statue. However, in the 1980s, uh, you do have to notice we do start to notice that the iron rods on the inside are starting to weaken. Mm. So, what was very interesting is. With the right funding uh, and, and to prep it for the centennial of the Statue of Liberty, every single one of Eiffel's original iron rods were replaced with American steel instead. Here's what's more interesting. In order to keep it structurally sound, they could only remove four bars at a time. Yeah. So it took them quite a f- few years sure. to be able to do it. But the entire internal structure of it is, is brand new and structurally sound. This thing truly is a marvel of architecture because you've got... First of all, you have these giant iron rods that were embedded into the island originally that were supporting the pedestal. And then on top of that, you've got these giant rods that were driven into the pedestal to support the statue. And those still stand, and those are still bolted into the structure itself. This thing is so structurally sound, it is said that you would actually have to you'd have to somehow be able to topple over the entire island to topple over the Statue of Liberty. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And it's standing at just over 305 feet. Um, it was, for many years, the tallest structure in the world. 
uh, up until the building of the Empire State Building. So what you're trying to tell me is that, let's play a hypothetical game for a moment. Let's say there was some sort of cataclysmic event in the world where we essentially descend into a post-apocalyptic society. And where we may or may not be conquered by apes. May or may not be conquered by apes. Just throwing it out there. The Statue of Liberty would still be there. Correct. Which means that ending in that movie is totally implausible. <laughs> because <laughs> Implausible or plausible? Implausible. Because when, they, when Charlton Heston goes and sees the Statue of Liberty, it's laying on a beach. Yeah, but we're not talking about the statue at that point. We're talking about the, the base of the statue failing. That statue held together. Sure. So plausible. I'm going to say plausible. I, I wouldn't say it's plausible at all because the statue, again, because of the internal structure, the whole statue is, it's one unit at that point. Uh, it's so deeply bolted to that pedestal. It, but did we really pan all the way down to the feet? Now, unless you're talking about a Ghostbusters 2 scenario ah, where, they use the, crazy. where they use the good slime to get it to actually walk off of the pedestal. Right. Which is ridiculous. Then it tripped and fell over and then somehow lost its, you know, its animate and animus, you know, form. Then maybe we're talking about plausibility. But then again, we're talking about an implausible scenario that causes... I think that's a, implausible at that point, because as she steps off of the statue, uh, it doesn't reveal what you're talking about at all. Hang on. Are we actually having this discussion right now? <laughs> uh, Brian, do, do you not remember the first word? It's in nerds the, in history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I'm just, just bringing it back to, to, to there for a moment. Cause, so, you know. folks, there you have it. You have uh, the brief history of the Statue of Liberty. Can I mention something quickly? Sure, because, we just skipped over a couple things, but yeah. Well, that's okay. I think I think one thing that really stood out for me, though, is when you were mentioning its original construction and where it was being constructed, you know, in a park. And when New Yorkers were first introduced to the Statue of Liberty, it quite honestly wasn't at that unveiling of the statue. Yes, in its entirety, certainly it was. But the very first piece they were introduced to... Was the head, yes. No, not the head, but the arm holding the torch. Oh, yeah. The Centennial Expo in Philadelphia in, in 1876, that's when the, the torch was first put around on tour to help raise money for the building of, of that base. Yeah. Uh, and it was neat because people got an opportunity to actually walk up to the torch. And for some folks, those were, you know, some of the few people actually had an opportunity to do that was before the statue had ever yeah, been it's pretty cool. fully constructed. Indeed. One other fun little fact, too, the face that you see on the statue uh, is that of Bertoldi's mother. Now, we, that was 100% intentional, but we never knew why. Some people say it was for patriotic reasons, because his mother was, um, I guess, she fought in the French Revolution. Uh, uh, just because it was his mom. Yeah. Some people say it's psychological because it's his mom, but we actually, honestly, we have no evidence to support either. It's just We just we just know it was based off of his mother. No, I'm pretty sure that conversation happened at some point where his mom was, you know, you never come see me anymore. <laughs> You're always busy with this statue. Sure. You never think about me. I don't know who you are anymore. And then... The unveiling. Um, there is a couple of wacky theories I do want to mention. Uh, first of all, we didn't f talk about the New Colossus, which is the sonnet that was made in 1883 by Emma Lazarus. We have to talk who was, about Who was that. a Sephardic Jewish immigrant who uh, wanted to speak about the, uh, you know, she was the one who, of course, gave the famous words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Beautiful poetry. It is. Um, if only it had really, truly been officially adopted. Yeah. And, 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 and the final piece of it basically saying, screw the old country, come to America, keep ancient lands, your story pump. So she was, she, and she was a Sephardic, like I said, Sephardic Jewish immigrant from Portugal. So clearly she had gone 
really gung-ho about, about America at this point. She loved that country, and she wanted to show her patriotism. One of the weird little factoid is that <laughs> there's a conspiracy theory, of course there is, there's a conspiracy theory around the statue because uh, Bertoldi was a member of the Freemasons. So, of course, people think that this is a Freemason symbol. Um, I don't know about that, honestly. Sure, you see some symbolism that matches Freemasonry, but... There it- are so many people who were members of the Freemasons that if everything they ever did in their lives was a reflection of that, we would have things like probably toilet brushes and, and you know, sandwiches uh, that would be symbols of the Freemasons. So right. I, I'm going to choose to to disbelieve this yeah, particular well, to, one. To be, to be more specific, not just the Freemasonry, because the more darker form of the Freemasonry, the Illuminati. This is believed that this was uh, one of the, uh, meant to be a symbol of strength by the Illuminati. Which doesn't exist, by the way. Correct. Um, but <laughs> according, if anyone's wondering. But according to some, according to some conspiracy theories, Lady Liberty is in fact a representation of Lucifer. Holy crap! Yeah, that's a pretty dra- that's a pretty heavy-handed thing to be saying. Really? Yeah, I don't quite see Lucifer. Well, Lucifer in the, in the strictest translation of the word means enlightened, right? And she's bearing a torch. Yeah, I see a little bit of Helen Marin, but I don't see Lucifer. Yeah, folks, th- th- this is a wild conspiracy theory. Uh, that I mean, we, and we're already going over our time, so we really can't discuss it. Um, but I will say that if you look at the, the tablet that she's holding, and it says July 4th, 1776, uh, in Roman numerals, it goes exactly to what Bertoldi was trying to do. He was doing a neoclassical representation of liberty that spoke to the, again, the goddess of liberty, Libertas, uh, and as well as our American concept of America. We, we didn't even talk, talk about Columbia. Columbia was the feminine personification of America prior to Uncle Sam. There's elements of Columbia in this. You know Columbia now because she's the anthem of, she's the mascot for Columbia Pictures. Yeah, it's sad that that's how most people know it, including myself, I'm going to be totally honest. Yeah. So, um, you know, very rich history. And if you guys are ever in New York, it's a very inexpensive ticket. It's like maybe $25, $30 to take a ferry from Battery Park to uh, the statue. And if you really can, you have to have the full day Go to Ellis Island as well. We're going to talk about that in our next episode. Uh, but in the meantime, folks, as we get into the 4th of July, what better way to, to celebrate than to talk about one of our most cherished American symbols? And I'm glad that Eric let me uh, ramble for 45 minutes uh, about it. You did it. not ramble, my friend. You educated. And you did so masterfully. So thank you. I, I know that, that you, you had a really... Uh, Really transformational experience when when you had yeah I was there back in October I was there just after the hundred and thirtieth or hundred twenty eighth or hundred twenty seventh hundred twenty eighth anniversary of the of the statue opening so yeah. like and, and it really shows yeah so I appreciate that you're welcome um let's shall get into some feedback shall we let us this week in listener feedback got a couple quick ones real uh, we got one from Michelle. Uh, which is labeled Nerdy Etymology, says, I read an article recently that mentioned that the first recorded use of the word nerd is in a Dr. Seuss book. It made me think, Very true. uh, It made me think that an episode about the origins of nerdy words and acronyms might be fun, i.e. geek, OTP, fandom, etc. I hate the word geek. When you learn where it comes from, it's really kind of a horrible word. I think it would be great to have an episode to have Sarah guest host and maybe have the Wheel of History as well. 
if it's feeling cooperative. <laughs> Funny you bring up a podcast on etymology. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I think our listeners are so pissed at us by now. <laughs> We've been teasing them for months. Uh, it's coming, folks. It's coming. We're working uh, on stuff. So we have that. We also got another one from Russ uh, real quick, which was uh, in reference to our King Arthur episode, in fact. Uh he said, hey, the nerds, I just finished listening to the Are You Saying Coconuts Migrate episode and really enjoyed it. I wanted to share my favorite piece of Arturian fanfic. Awesome. Uh, the Dragons in Our Midst and Oracles of Fire series by Brian Davis. He spells his name like I do with a Y. Uh, they're more geared toward young adult, but combine Arturian legend, Christian tradition, and dragons, naturally, uh, set in both modern and ancient settings, all brought together in one overarching story. I'm relatively I'm a relatively new listener, and I really enjoy the show. Keep up the good work, Russ from Ohio. Russ from Ohio, I thank you. Indeed, and of course, folks, thank you for giving your feedback. You can do that by going through our, our social media, Facebook and, and Twitter, but also to nerdonomy.com. And tell us, Eric, what else can you do when you go to nerdonomy.com? Well, you can give us money, and money that will go to a good cause. The cause of nerdonomy by going to the donate link in the top of the page in that navigation bar uh you can of course if you can support us through our affiliates you can do that as well yeah, sign up for a free audible trial gives us a little something gives you a lot yeah uh but in the meantime what you can do is if you know if you can't afford that you we can accept a donation as little as a dollar through our paypal page we certainly could use the help we're we're kind of holding on to our basic operations, but we need to make improvements. We definitely need a ceiling on our recording studio. We need a permanent ceiling. Yes, we have a temporary one that was generously donated by one of our listeners, but it's not quite cutting the mustard anymore. It's getting a little hot in here. We need something that's actually going to keep the heat out. So, Or rather, keep the cool air in and the hot air out. Indeed. All right, folks. It's that time. And uh, so until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Later. Eric? Yes, Brian? It's not coming off. <laughs> I imagine that would probably happen. This is going to be really funny. It's starting to itch. It's itching really bad. <laughs>